True Crime friends, welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks, and I hope it gets better for you. I have a super special episode for you today. With me today, I have a very special guest. I have the author of 18 Tiny Deaths, the untold story of the woman who invented modern forensics. With me, Bruce Goldfarb. Bruce, thank you so much for being with me today. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Now, as someone who's always been interested in true crime, obviously forensic science is a huge part of true crime. And sometimes we don't always think about how forensic science, forensic medicine has even progressed. And reading 18 Tiny Deaths, I just was in complete shock that, you know, a woman who came from a very wealthy family was the person who basically pushed for these changes and basically made modern forensic what it is today. Um, but before we get into her, I kind of want to talk about you a little bit. Uh -oh. What was your journey as a writer like or how did you become a writer? Oh, that was a it was a weird uh, meandering path, but I, I started out. Uh, my first career was as a, a EMT. I was trained as an EMT, and I uh, went on to be a paramedic. And I was briefly a firefighter, and uh, went to nursing. I went to nursing school, but didn't graduate. I, I didn't want to be a nurse, and um, came to Baltimore to finish my undergraduate degree. But you know, during this time, I've been sort of fooling around with writing and um, just with the local community papers and uh, those sorts of things, and um, discovered that you know I could actually make money at it, and and had some uh, good luck with uh, a few pieces, and did a segment on All Things Considered, and did a piece for the Washington Post, and you know I just, well yeah, this is great. And, and I found that I was able to merge these two things. I started out mostly writing about medicine and science and these sorts of things because they were familiar to me and interested me. And uh, it was a way of writing about medicine was a way of uh, combining those skills and, and those interests. Wow, that's really incredible that especially like the EMT and everything. That's that's really cool. And now I think your book mentions that you are I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but you're currently the assistant to the chief medical examiner. Is that still? Yes, I'm the executive assistant to the chief medical examiner for the state of Maryland. Wow. What is that like? That just sounds so intense. <laughs> it is very interesting. It's a real privilege. It's a we're a, a statewide agency and uh, quite well known in the field and um, very busy. And uh, there's you know, I, I have the sort of miscellaneous duties as assigned. Uh, as the chief, I represent him internally and externally. I'm the public information officer. I keep track of the subpoenas that the office gets. I do sort of customer service when things get escalated, their problems, and they're going towards the chief. 
and then they go through me and, you know, I try and resolve things and whatever really, you know, stuff that comes up. I mean, that just sounds like a dream for me. Like, I feel like I would want to be up in all of that, but that's awesome. Um, it, it is absolutely the job of a lifetime. It is an amazing privilege. Every day is I mean, so many things that uh, uh, it just uh, uh, amazing experiences. I mean, incredible. Now, how exactly did you become familiar with Francis Glessner Lee? Well, as a writer and mm -hmm. as a medical writer, and, and I heard about them a long, long, long time ago. And it was uh, 1992 or 93 or thereabouts. And um, one of the publications I wrote for often was the weekly newspaper of the American Medical Association called American Medical News. And they paid very, very well. I'm talking about what well, it was $1,200 or $1,500. It was a lot at the time for feature stories about doctors with interesting hobbies. And, and um, so I, I wrote about a gang of uh, a motorcycle gang of doctors. And I wrote about um, a doctor who studied ancient Egyptian uh, uh, manuscripts. And I heard about these dioramas that were at the medical examiner's office that had a medical foundation and they're used for training and forensic medicine. And it, fortunately it had enough of a medical angle to it that they, that they went for it. And I, I knew the chief medical examiner at the time, Dr. John Smilek, and he was very nice and spent some time with me and let me borrow some images. And, um, and that was that. And it was just like this one off. I just did the piece and be done with it. But, you know, I, I, I kept returning and people would want me to arrange a visit to the medical examiner's office. And I was one of these people like, the, you know, I respond to who show up and say, you know, can we see the dioramas? And, and I visited, you know, many, many times and they knew me there by face, you know, they, they knew who I was. And so, um, you know, I knew about the office. I knew some people there, uh, but it wasn't until, you know, just 10 years ago in 2012, I arranged a visit for a group of editors. I was working for a network of hyperlocal news websites called Patch, owned by Huffington Post, America Online. And um, the state of Maryland had this brand new state-of-the-art forensic medical center, this unbelievable facility, huge and just gleaming. And um, I, I, I knew a guy who's the director of IT, and he arranged a, a visit, a tour for us, for the a group of editors. And while we're on the tour, they mentioned we got this new position for the assistant to the chief. Uh, we're looking, you know, an ideal candidate would be somebody who, who maybe an EMT who's got some journalism background and comfortable with uh, lawyers and cops and uh, dealing with the public. And I mean, it's that's it, me, you know. I mean, I don't. There's not a lot of people with that sort of combination of skills. Yeah, I mean, I'd say so. I mean, it sounds almost like it was literally tailored for you. I mean, it definitely seems one yeah. of those situations of fate, if you will. <laughs> and the nutshells never came up in any of it. it, had nothing to do with anything. It was just um, because I was the new guy and uh, the low man in the, uh, uh, in the pecking order, um, you know, it, it fell on me to take care of him and uh, change the light bulbs and um, I was the only one who uh, had, uh, who was willing to, you know, let people visit them and filmmakers and photographers and those sorts of things. So um, it just sort of, you know, 
fell fell to me. They, so you yeah. so you had the power. You were like the gatekeeper of who couldn't couldn't see the yeah. exhibit, basically. Yes. Right? yes. Wow. That's really cool. <laughs> what, what can I, say? I I won't argue with you. Yes, it's very cool. Back to um back to Lee. Yes. Based off what you've learned about her, what was that research process though like? How did you come back to her after writing the article about her? Well, it was through the job and, and you know, uh, having the keys to the cabinet, I, I got to learn a lot more about the dioramas and inspect them uh, very closely. Um, one of the things I noticed was that they're, uh, I mean, they were at the time, they were approaching what, you know, 75, 80 year old artifacts and, and they were showing signs of age, things were cracking and deteriorating. And I, I knew that some of them had asbestos and, and that was a concern. But um, I got to meet Francis Glesner Lee's family because we do have this homicide seminar. And so on, uh, I guess it was uh, 2015 for the anniversary, 80th anniversary of the, of the first one, we invited all the Glesner Lee's families and all her descendants. And I had dinner with her uh, two surviving grandchildren. And um, it was just, you know, such a, her family is just all amazing. They're all accomplished and just wonderful people. And um, I also met uh, uh, William Tyre, who is the curator of the Glesner House in Chicago, which is now a museum. And, you know, we would talk and um, it, there, there was so much misinformation about Francis Glesner Lee online and these uh, these stories that were repeated over and over that uh, had no basis in truth, and um, and in talking with Bill, and you know, sort of, yeah, it's it's too bad nobody's ever, you know, her her story had never been told, and you know, the the concern was, you know, that somebody would do it and then do a bad job with it, and so you know, really, who is in a good position to to do something like that, and so. Um, Bill got uh, the permission of the family and with their blessing, he gave me, he had been turning away authors for years. People would go to the Glesner house, they want to see the Glesner papers and uh, he was turning away authors. Wow. And, and he, I was the first and only one that he's allowed to paw through and look through everything. And so uh, that was uh, just a, just a great process of learning and exploring and discovering so much more about her. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize there was so much misinformation about her online, but I think that's really, really cool that you got to be like the one to be like, no, I'm going to set this record straight and just dive in and give you, give everyone the truth about the, who she was. Yeah. In, in the internet age, uh, replacing misinformation with factual information is a very, very, very slow process because mm -hmm. I read things that are online and they quote the same sources. Um, you know, I, I keep reading that her parents forbid her from going to college. And that is so not true. And, you know, even these stories, contemporaneous stories that people are writing today about her, and it's still, you know, they, they fall on that. That it's a, that would be a great story for her, true. That mm -hmm. this woman, you know, her parents were so strict and forbidden, but that's not true. Uh, they were very, very supportive. and. And, and the fact is that the only thing she wanted to do was to go to Harvard Medical School. And Harvard didn't admit women until 1945. 
So it was totally out of her, their hands. She could have done anything she wanted to. But in any event, um, what are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. Now, from what you've learned about her, how would you describe her as a person? If someone asked you, what would you, what would you oh, say? <laughs> she is a force of nature. She is, I would say, very demanding, a perfectionist, difficult, obsessive, brilliant. Uh, a just, uh, you know, she had uh, such a background in the arts and culture, languages. She was fluent in German and French, Italian. She was just a, you know, voracious reader. Uh, just brilliant and creative and what other adjectives would you like <laughs> whatever you can give me i, I, oh, I determined is definitely one of them oh, yeah. reading i mean oh, yeah. for sure yeah. and almost to the point of maybe stubborn i would say <laughs> oh definitely headstrong yeah definitely stubborn i mean she she fought for years for the system of death investigation and never in spite of all the setbacks and all the frustrations and all the health issues and, and, and encroaching age, she never, ever, ever gave up that fight. And I have to say, that's one thing that I really liked about how you laid out your uh, book about her was that it felt like we had all of this rush of this is what she's doing. This is the amazing work she's doing. And then you get to a point where it's like, OK, this is all the great stuff she did. But this was also the hardship that she had to then endure. And I kind of liked be that order of it just because you kind of get lost in the fact that this is like the early mid 1900s and that women really didn't have much of a say. I mean, obviously, she wasn't even allowed to go to Harvard mm -hmm. you know, because women weren't allowed to go. But yet here she is like the pioneer really pushing for things and, you know, really making things happen. And she talking was to people. <laughs> she was really going into uncharted territory you know she was mm -hmm. inventing this as she goes nobody had, was doing anything like this yeah and like you almost forget that at some point like i said until you then bring up oh hey by the way like we need to remember <laughs> you know yeah. that she was a woman and these were the hardships that she would have to go through in order you know to get the results that she wanted yeah what was the most surprising thing that you learned about her I learned many surprising things. Uh, I, I mean, I heard there was a lot of like anecdotes and things and stuff that I just couldn't work into the book and a lot of surprising things. But really, one of the most frequently asked questions I get when people see the dioramas is, you know, what got her going in this area? Was she seeking justice for somebody? Was she avenging? You know, nothing it was no it was nothing like that she was not nobody in her family was a victim of a crime it was nothing uh, in fact that she was more concerned about clearing the innocent uh, as uh, uh convicting the guilty and I, I was just my mind was blown when i found in her own words describing the moment that changed her life and what did it and it was this this just offhand chance remark from her friend george burgess mcgrath um, that led her on this, this extraordinary journey 
over years to museums and, and researching all these esoteric subjects and to produce this manuscript, but it led to um, the founding of legal, the Department of Legal Medicine, the foundation of forensic medicine in the United States. And what set it off was George McGrath making this offhand observation that the organs of the human body are the most you know, beautiful objects and would be delightful in a like a mural or some piece of art that you'd see in a doctor's office or something. And, and that literally flipped a switch in her mind. And you, that got her to thinking uh, and um, going on this path of exploration and, and learning that uh, led to the rest of her life and, and what we have today in, in forensic medicine. One of the most interesting things since you brought up McGrath was that she talks about, or in the book, you talk about how she started this epic called, yes. and I'm probably going to butcher it, anatomography? A anatomography, that's oh. right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm trying, this is all from memory now. It's been, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, but yes, when I was going through the papers in the Glistener house, and uh, these have been cataloged and everything, and Bill Tyre let me, uh, he, his office is up in the attic and all the papers and everything are up in there. And so he set up, he let me work at a table there and he was over uh, at the other side of the room sitting at a desk and there was a bundle, it looked like a, a, a ream of paper that was wrapped up in brown paper and then tied with the twine. And I looked very carefully at the knot. It had never been untied. This was all original. And I said to him, what's, what's this? He says, I don't know, nobody's, I don't know. So I, I open it up and it's a manuscript, this book that she has written. And it's, you know, hundreds of pages. And she's written this epic poem, in, uh, you know, in, in quatrains uh, about the human body and each quatrain describing a tissue or a bone. Uh, and this, oh, it, it, there's you know, it, passages in Latin and, and uh, you know, all these quotations from Shakespeare. And, oh my God, you know, this whole manuscript that she wrote for George, George McGrath to sort of encapsulate his point about the beauty of the human, uh, the beauty of humans mm -hmm. uh, and the human body. And, and um, it was just the most extraordinary thing. And I'm going back, I didn't copy all of it when I was there, I'm going back, we are going back in March for Francis Glistener Lee's birthday. And I, I think that's one of my list of things to do is to uh, copy the entire manuscript. Wow. And do you think that the family would want that published? I mean, I'm assuming it would have to be up to them, I'm guessing. That's really ambiguous. Um, uh, it's not entirely clear. I don't know if publishing it would be a, a goal. It probably would be a, um, a process of approaching the errors and all that. And I, as I recall, now what she had originally, she had intended for this to be bound and given to McGrath. I don't believe that she did because there is no bound volume that was in the McGrath library that was later in the Harvard uh, Countway Library. So I think that was her plan. The, but the, the, the type that I saw um, which is was onion skin, so it was a it was a carbon copy. Uh, that's not even the original, and the um, there there weren't the illustrations. It's really only half the book because mm -hmm. she illustrated it as well, and her uh, instructions 
she wanted it bound in green leather with the, the script and the decorations on it. You know, every little detail had a significance to it beyond its initial appearance. Uh, it was, uh, you know, a, an egg and the, and the front and the front part and a skeleton on the back part of a fish. And then the whole book was about Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the end, and life. Uh, and um, the the for the binding, um, the the instructions were handwritten, uh, uh, thirteen pages long, just discussing how the binding is supposed to be, and this and the color, and and all you know, just unbelievable. But anyways, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing I actually I found your book because of a book club that I lead. Um, it's a true crime book club. <laughs> and that was the one thing all of us said. We were like, where is this? We want to yeah. read it. We want to see it, you know, because yeah. the way it's described is just it's so fascinating. I, I wish I wish it's something to think about. Uh, I don't know what would be involved, to, you know, with rights and, and those sorts of things. But um she died in 62. I don't think the copyright, it's not in the public domain at this point. I think it was 50 or 75 years after somebody's, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure, but yeah. that would be something. Yeah. Now, of all of the dioramas that she made, I know only, is it 18 of 18. them yeah. that are left? Yes. Can you tell us the names of the exhibits? Oh, off the top of my head. <laughs> Name them all. All right. Clockwise. There is a three-room three dwelling, uh, living room. It's next to the living room. Is um, it's it's the red bedroom. Is that red bedroom? Right. And then saloon and jail, and then the kitchen, uh, woodsman's shack, um, unpapered bedroom. Um, pink bathroom, the attic, did I already say the attic, uh, parsonage parlor, two-story porch, blue, uh, blue striped bedroom, um, what's next to that? And then I guess dark bathroom is next to that. And then two-car garage. Uh, and then there is, um, Log cabin is in the middle. Burn cabin is over to the other side. And standing in the very center is uh, the barn, the biggest one. Is that 18? Oh, yes, I was counting. Yes, really? I was 18. Yes, I was. Did, did I get the right? figures? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't know that I would be quizzed, but. <laughs> it's okay. No, because you mentioned each room kind of in the book, but there's never like a full list of what they all are, um, which you know, you know, in all fairness, okay, I, I get that criticism a lot, that there's not enough pictures about the dioramas, it's not about the dioramas. There actually is a lovely book called The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death that has pictures of all the dioramas, and it lists all the dioramas. And I point out to people, you know, mine is about the woman, it's a little mm -hmm. bit about the dioramas, but it's about the woman and what she did. But, you know, people, I get some really cruel reviews on Amazon because there's not enough pictures. There's, yes. And I didn't. So I just want to point that out for the record. You know, mine's a biography, beautiful, beautiful pictures in Corinne Botts' book, The Nutshell Studies of Unexplained Death. But anyways. Yeah. So please don't 
go over to Amazon and criticize right. Bruce or be mean about this because don't be again, don't do that. That's okay. not cool. That's horrible. I'm so sorry that people have done that to you. But again, but, I was just curious about the names, but I mean, it seems like she's got pretty much a lot of different types of crime scenes. She meant to produce around 50 of them. She wanted to have a whole room full of them and uh, never really stopped working on them. She produced 20 had been completed and they found um, at least two or three, maybe more that were sort of partially completed that she was working on and she never officially stopped working on them. And it was just a matter of her fine motor skills and her vision giving out that she just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I mean, the one that you actually mentioned, the burnt barn house. Yeah. I remember reading that part in the book and my heart just literally fell to my stomach when she took the blowtorch <laughs> to it. Yeah. And, oh you know, it, it, just to, you know, how, how amazing these little things are. People don't really appreciate, you know, I've had model makers visit. I've had artists visit and they look at that one and they're just baffled how she was able to burn something so precisely without destroying it without throwing water on it, without throwing sand on it. Uh, it's just, that itself is just a, one of these details, once you start thinking about it, it's just amazing. Yeah. I And I looked at it from like an artist's perspective. I'm like, oh my gosh, she made this thing, like again, with how meticulous she was and with the yeah. attention to detail, I mean. She spent thousands, I mean, just the money, thousands to make it and then burn it. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. for that reason alone, I was just like, that hurts my heart just to think all of this work went into it. But at the yeah. same time, I'm like, she knew she was doing this. Oh, That's oh, why yeah. she did it. Because oh, she yeah. wanted to have that type of unexplained death there. Yes. And she had money to burn. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, which that's another really interesting thing, too, because at the time that I was reading 18 Tiny Deaths, it was just around or it just had happened the whole billionaire space race. Yeah. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, reading about her and just going, wow, what if we had more billionaires like Francis Glessner Lee? You know, back in, in those in those days, we did have we had the Carnegie's and they, you know, they established libraries and music halls and these sorts of things. The, the Rockefellers, you got Rockefeller Center. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, it really is a shame. You know, she could have spent her life anonymously traveling, collecting art, um, indulging herself and doing any number of things. Nobody would have known, nobody would have blamed her. Uh, and uh, she chose not to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she really just decided that she was going to make something happen. But also, it also seemed like she really didn't, not that she didn't want the credit for it, but she, the way you describe it is that she knew, like, she's like, this isn't about me. Right. This is about figuring out how do we better solve unexplained deaths in a scientific way That's right. so that it's not so politicized, which was another thing I didn't realize how much yeah. back then <laughs> being a coroner or, you know, essentially, because that was most of what was happening. Still is in many parts. Half the country is still in the coroner system. Which, again, blows my yeah. mind. <laughs> I I, that is a common reaction. I am I am serving a purpose here, person by person. 
mm -hmm. informing people, enlightening, educating. I'm continuing her mission. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Which again, just incredible. Now, how do you think the world of forensic science would have changed if universities and just the United States in general got on board with her recommendations and kind of stuck with her plan of advancing not only just forensic science, but obviously unexplained deaths and how they're handled? Yeah, I, well, for one, I, I think it's not just forensic pathology, but the pathology in, in general is really suffering in that, um, you know, people aren't choosing to go this route to, today. It, it's just, um, there's still this huge need for, you know, well-trained, well-qualified forensic pathologists. Um, you know, it, it would, she had hoped, you know, her vision was to have a coast-to-coast um, uh, medical examiner system from coast to coast. And in some parts of the country, it, it is politicized because, you know, the coroner, it's a local official and local officials are reluctant to give up power. And um, so, you know, it's just a very, very daunting, the whole thing is like, um, it's a very, very, very painfully slow process. And, um, it, you know, I, there hasn't been much progress uh, since she exited the stage, since the 1960s. It really has been very, very, very little since her but, passing. Yeah, which is crazy because, I mean, we have shows like CSI, like yeah. all of these forensic science-based, yeah. you know, and even most like, you know, uh, Law & Order SVU or most Law & Order shows, they have a medical examiner. Yep. You know, people think that, oh, this is standard procedure, but... That's right. In reading your book, I realized, no, no that's not at all no. the case. People, it was like one of the first things you said, talking about the, the CSI, you know, people assume that uh, there is, anytime there's a death, that there's going to be this team of well-trained professionals and scientists who come with alternative light sources and fingerprinting and, um, and that they believe that happens all the time, which it doesn't. And they believe it's always been that way, which is not true. It's a fairly recent development. And that for a long time, it was not like that at all. But uh, still, to this day, uh, you know, half the country, uh, only half the country is, is served by, you know, medical examiners. And the rest are uh, coroners that are largely elected politicians and uh, with, you know, not necessarily any medical background or training or anything like that. And I think it's kind of, again, just funny that these crime shows kind of give us this comforting myth of like, oh, this is how we would want things to be handled. Well, it's fiction. That's TV yeah. shows. Things get wrapped up in 45 minutes. The, yeah. <laughs> the middle, for one thing, the autopsy rooms are always shadowy. I, I, I can't stand watching these shows. Yeah, you watch one of the CSI and they show the autopsy room. Everything's in shadows. They have this gorgeous facility and they didn't put in light bulbs. I don't. I never understood that. And then the medical examiner uh, is a woman wearing high heels who does the autopsy. Am I right or not? Yes. And no. Does yeah. Does the autopsy gets the answer and then goes to find somebody the suspect to interrogate. Mm -hmm. right? I, you know, it doesn't get more fictional than that. Yeah. And I just think it's a shame that a lot of people, like I said, I think they, you know, they think that this is how. 
yes. crimes are being solved. And I think it just yeah. puts them in a false state of like comfort of thinking, oh, yeah, if something well, were to happen to me, I'll be it'll be fine. They'll figure it out. <laughs> I mean, they still might. But that stereotype is still preferable to the stereotype of the medical examiner who is an alcoholic, uh, disheveled alcoholic with the cigarette dangling from his lips, you know, shabby clothing and, you know, mm-hmm. so. What are you going to do? It's one, yeah. one, one end of the spectrum or the other. And to be fair, though, technically McGrath was a function, very functional <laughs> alcoholic, but also a very good medical examiner. Maybe that's where it came from. <laughs> the, the archetype alcoholic medical examiner. But he was a snappy dresser. Now, he was never disheveled. Which that, that's good. But it also yeah. seemed like he was someone who was very articulate with how he explained the more scientific parts to a jury. He, he was, yes. And he, he also, like Francis, uh, you know, was steeped in, he had a, a, you know, a musical background and, and he was a very, very cultured uh, person uh, and, um, you know, musical and, and arts and uh, sports. He was quite a guy. And they knew each other beforehand, right? He was friends with her brother, George. Right. When she was a teenager, mm-hmm. she, they went to the Chicago World's 1893 World's Fair when her brother was at Harvard and she was 15 years old and she'd known him. She'd known him, you know, for years, but not really closely. That was her brother's friend. And it wasn't until middle age when, you know, she got to know him you know, as a collegial level and, and, and really developed into a very, very close friendship. Never romantic, mm-hmm. but a, a very, very close friendship. Yeah, which I think is really cool. Now, do you think Lee would have ever thought of pursuing forensic science had it not been for George McGrath? Oh, absolutely not. I don't know where she would have encountered it. Uh, we, there wouldn't have been forensic science if it weren't for George McGrath. Uh, and had they not spent time together in 1929, I don't know how well she would have, you know, been drawn into it. She may have been, she was definitely looking for a purpose, a mission, something to do with her life and something meaningful to do. And, and maybe it would have been something. Uh, I don't, I don't know why it would have been forensic science or forensic medicine, you know, how well she would have been um, drawn towards it. Maybe, maybe, you know, it would have crept up in some other way and, you know, it was waiting there for her. I don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's a very loaded question, which I know is probably hard to answer. Um, But thank you. But I mean, and also you do discuss that it did seem she had some interest in medicine earlier on. She did. And um, yeah, since from the time she was a child, really. And when the family spent summers in New Hampshire in Littleton at their estate, the Rocks, and she would go with the local uh, physician as he made his house calls. And she would make, um, you know, broths and wine jelly for uh, invalids and uh, assist with his things that he was doing and whatever, changing bandages. And so she, she had an interest in it, but, uh, you know, she could have gone to medical school if she wanted to. And her mother was a good friend of the first woman, I forget her name, the first woman uh, member of the American Medical Association. And, you know, so the, the, the idea of a woman physician was not entirely foreign. She could have, there were 
plenty of, of medical schools. And, and there were, what, half dozen, dozen women's medical schools uh, at the time. So, you know, she, she could have. But really, the only thing she wanted was Harvard. And um, it was Harvard or nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Which, again, I feel like, I think for most people, I feel like that might be very silly to hold, like that for that to be the reason why to hold back. But at the same time, I mean, Harvard holds such a prestige. It does. And they were for whatever reason, I mean, their, their roots of the Glesners were fairly modest, working class. They grew up in working class families in Ohio who went to Chicago and, and you know, indulged in, in the culture and the arts. And I don't know if that was part of that they aspired to be the Eastern Blue Bloods and be part of that, but they were, they for whatever reason, they latched on uh, Harvard, their their architect, H.H. H. Robertson, uh, went to Harvard. Francis Glesnerly's husband, Blewettly, was a Harvard grad. Uh, their, uh, her brother went to Harvard. George McGrath went to Harvard. Um, you know, everybody important around them went, went to Harvard. They're a Harvard family. And um, they supported it financially and were their friends with the university president. And um, I, you know, I don't know why, but it was important to them, probably because of the prestige and the elitism and wanted to have that uh, aura of uh, on them. I do think it's cool, though, that in some way later in life, she really gets to assert herself and make herself kind of become part of Harvard. Like uh, reading how she went about trying to make the forensic school of medicine and the light and McGrath library, I mean, which sadly, I know the McGrath Library changed and is not technically the same thing, or they, I think they consolidated back in with the library like they yeah. originally wanted to. Yeah. But at least for a time, it seems like she got to not necessarily be a Harvard student, but at least she kind of got to be a part of Harvard and Harvard's history. She did. And and she she was able to push Harvard around and, and get <laughs> Harvard to do her beck and call. And you know, this, there's this anecdote in the book where, you know, she wanted this room to, for, uh, on the uh, third floor, whatever it was, the third floor there, that belonged to this really prominent pharmacologist who basically was the, the founder of modern pharmacology. And, you know, and, and, and this room contains the records of the U.S. Pharmacopeia. And it was, oh, my God. And she says, I want that room. And it escalated to the president of uh, of Harvard University, who had the unfortunate duty to write her back and say, the room's just not available. And she she waited and she waited and it was a, a weeks later and she responded and she says, I want you to think over your answer. Just give it some really good thought. And she got the room. <laughs> I think actually the point I do remember that because I was like, wow, yeah. good for her. I think she even <laughs> says like, yeah, this guy's going to be retiring soon. So like, you should just give me the room. Exactly. <laughs> Don't forget, I got the money. Yeah. It's like, if you, you want do. more money from me, exactly. then you need to do what I need you to do. That's right. But again, I love that that's how she used her money. Again, I wish we had more billionaires in this day and age anyway. Yes that were with, like her <laughs> yes with that sort of mission to do to do good use your money as a force for good yes exactly 
Before we go, is there anything you would like the listeners to know about Francis Glessner Lee or forensic medicine, anything like that? Oh, about her or, or forensic medicine? Um, well, you didn't mention that, you know, I mean, you, you know, she is responsible. For, she's the reason why homicide detectives are a thing. But, you know, she's also responsible for forensic medicine in popular culture and, and the first feature film. And she literally, she is the one who got that idea to Hollywood and had that film made, which is a whole, that's a whole different conversation. But um, um, I don't know, I could talk about her all day. I mean, she's so fascinating. Again, just to think that, again, some rich Chicago socialite in her later years would think, oh yeah, let me do something to better, you know, the, the world essentially. Everybody, every yeah. single person, everybody matters. Everybody deserves the same thing. It's just, oh, thank you so much again for sitting down with me to talk about this book. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, are you working on anything that we should be looking out for? Um, I am working on stuff. Uh, nothing to work out for, look out for really soon. There's always stuff in, in the works. Um, but nothing, nothing like immediately. I, I do have, I just wanted to show you, yes. I have, yes, I have a, oops, this is one of, there's actually words on the pages. There's, oops, there, you can read it. There's, there's words in there. It's the same, it's the same size as the, um, the nutshells. Oh my God. I was just going to say that that looks like it's to scale for it the nutshell. Oh my gosh. Yep. That's incredible. That is so cool. Again, thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Everybody, if you have not checked out 18 Tiny Deaths already, please do. It is such a captivating book. Honestly, the way it's written, I just couldn't stop turning pages. I thought I flipped like maybe two and then I would look at the page number and it was like 10. So (laughs) you will absolutely enjoy reading this book. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, true crime friends, you've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, pre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, If you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E made it on facebook and instagram once again go to mandy made it on facebook and instagram send her a dm and order today 
So please go to your local bookstore and pick up 18 Tiny Deaths. I know there was one part a little at the ending that was a little cryptic. He was basically he was showing something to me that he had had. And I know I didn't say what it was because if you go to our Patreon and become a member, you will have access to the video of this interview. So you will get to see what it is that Bruce was showing me. You'll get to see what was to scale and that has words in it. So, like I said, if you are not a patron now, please go to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a patron today. I will read your name out at the end of the podcast, too. So that's another incentive. Also, don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. Also, follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Instagram and TikTok, at the Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter, and just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you'll find us. That's all I have for you today. That's all I have for you today, my loves. Please stay safe out there. You know, wear your masks, do all the things. I know I forgot to mention or say this last week, but I care about you. You know I care about you, so even if I forget to say it, you know I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it. Enjoy your week, you guys, and until next time, I will see you guys later. True Crime and Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, Jaron Usta, Marketing Director, and our interns, Nicola Grulo and Kimberly Dallas. Don't forget to follow us on social media at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Instagram and TikTok, Ivory Boiler Room on Twitter, and search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook. You can also find True Crime in Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime in Academia. To support our podcast, please go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a patron today to unlock exclusive content. As always, we appreciate your support and thank you for listening.